Chapter 3, Part 3 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Vlahakis, San Francisco. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922, by various authors. The next morning, after crossing the Arun at the Arun Bridge, we reached Shekhar, where we had a great reception. The Tsongpen played up, and he had no less than 160 mules, all collected and ready for us the following morning. And not only that, but every one turned out the evening, and we had a little race meeting of our own, and a great tea with exchange of cakes and compliments with the Tsongpen himself. Altogether we were evidently in very good favour both with the Tsongpen and with the great Lama of Shakar. Noel and others paid a very interesting visit to the great Lama, and were shown by him his collections of curios of all kinds. They thought at first that the old gentleman prized and guarded these as gompa property, but they were rather surprised to discover that he was perfectly ready to sell at a price, and that his own. He was by far the shrewdest trader that we had come across in Tibet. Most of the things that he was ready to part with, however, were beyond the pockets of our party. John MacDonald, who has a very good eye for a pony, took out a likely mount in the horse races, and himself won no less than three races that day. He bargained for it as he was looking forward to the Darjeeling pony races in the autumn, and before we left, MacDonald, to his great joy, had concluded a very respectable bargain. The following morning we got off not quite as well as we should. We had difficulty in loading, and some difficulties on the march. Shakar had proved altogether too much for the porters, and the following morning they were not of much use. In fact, it was with the greatest difficulty that many of them were produced at the next camp. The place was called Kishong. It had not been a very promising little camp, so we thought of stopping down by the river on a very pleasant plot of grass. But on arrival there we found a dead Tibetan, in a basket moored to the bank in the water, about a hundred yards above our camp, so that was no place for us. Instead of marching back exactly the same way we had come, via our camp at Gyanka Nangpa, we determined to follow up a smaller branch of the Arun, which would bring us finally down onto Tinki itself. By so doing, we avoided wading the Yaru in two places, and also the rather high and steep Tinki Pass. On our way across the plains of Teng, before one arrives at the great sand dunes of Shiling, we passed a Sokpo, a true Mongolian, whose home was in northern Mongolia near Urga, a religious devotee. He was travelling from Lhasa to Nepal, that is, to Kathmandu, on a pilgrimage, by the time-honoured method of measuring his length on the ground for every advance. He was a young man and apparently well-fed, 
trusting to the kindness of the villagers through which he passed for his food. He told us that he had been continually travelling, and that it had taken him one year to reach the place where we found him from Lhasa, and that he hoped to get to Kathmandu in another year, if he was lucky and able to cross the mountains. We encouraged him the best way we could, and left him to his work. Our halt that night was in a very pleasant camp surrounded by low cliffs, at a place called Jikyop. Our march up this valley was a great contrast to our march into Tibet. A warm sun and a pleasant cool breeze blowing. The clouds drifted across us and we had some rain, which only added to our comfort. We camped one night at a place called Chiu, where we all bathed and bathed the ponies into the bargain. Our last march before reaching Tinki was over an interesting pass, which suffers under the terrible name of the Farmagodra La, down to a pleasant little camping ground with a very dirty village near it. Here we caught an enormous number of fish the inhabitants proving quite ready to help us do so. Everyone fed freely on fresh fish that night. An easy, pleasant pass the following morning led us down in two and a half hours to Tinki. Here we met the Tongpen of Tinki for the first time. He was an extremely pleasant individual and the most friendly and intelligent official we met in Tibet. He helped us in every way and had previously helped Strut's party on their journey through. We heard excellent reports also of him, afterwards from the advance parties. When we had gone through in the spring, this Tsongpen had been away collecting his dues for the Tibetan government. Tinki was a very different place, very green and altogether very lovely. Before travelling in Tibet, we had heard so much of the wonderful colour of Tibetan scenery. It was only on our return journey when there was a considerable amount of moisture in the air, when clouds rolled up from the south, that one obtained a real notion of what Tibet could be like when at its best, and Tinki, which had been an absolute sandy waste when we marched up, was now covered with beautiful green grass and flowers. Nor was the air of that horrible and rather irritating dryness but was almost balmy, considering the height of the country. Two days later, we reached Kambatsong. The Tsongpen was absent, but his two headmen helped us in his place. We had pouring rain the whole of the following night. There must have been from one and a half to two inches of rain, a most surprising experience in Tibet, and one for which we were hardly prepared. The men had been breaking out a little again, and one sportsman had broken out considerably more than anybody else. For purposes of letting the porters down easily, we never considered a man was inebriated as long as he could lie on the ground without holding on. But this man, for three days in succession, had been hopeless, giving no reaction whatever to the smartest smacks with our sticks and finally having to be brought into camp and given a great deal of trouble. So we determined on an exemplary punishment. The other men who had broken out badly had all been given loads to carry for a march. 
but the next day this man was condemned to carry an enormous load from Kambatsong to Fari. Considering what his condition had been, we were absolutely astounded when the following day he carried the whole of well over a hundred pounds for a twenty-mile march to Tatsang over a pass of seventeen thousand feet, grinning and smiling the whole way as if it was the finest joke he had heard of. Everybody pulled his leg on the way, but nothing could possibly interfere with his good temper. He was condemned to carry this load right into Faritong, crossing the three high ridges of the Donkala, and never for a moment did he lose his temper or bear any ill will. This is characteristic of the people. As long as your treatment of them is understood by them to be just, they bear no ill will whatever, nor does it interfere in any way with one's friendly relations. But still, for all that, it seems to me that they are unkillable. After his behaviour and the condition he was in for so long, to do such terrific hard labour as we condemned him to do, without the smallest sign of fatigue, was pretty remarkable. But after all, my own particular, Angturke, had only complained of being a little dazed after falling sixty feet onto his head at the time of the accident. We camped at Tatsang, and here we parted with Noel, who carried off his own people and left us for Giantse. He was very much afraid of bringing his cinema films down into the warmth and damp of Sikkim until they were properly developed. But not only this, it was now the season of the great meetings and dances of Giantse, and he hoped to get first-rate studies of Tibetan life generally. The climate and accommodation also at Giantse would just suit him, and he would be able there to put in a full month's work, completing his films and adding immensely to his collection of pictures of Tibetan life. He accompanied us for five miles, almost up to the camp we had occupied on our arrival in the spring, and we left him with great regret. We had a long march that day from Tatsang, and again crossing the ridges of the Donkala, a very cold wind and sleet and rain overtook us. It was the last shot at us the typical Tibetan weather had, and considering the time of year, it did its very best for us. But we camped that night under the Donkala at a great height, not far from 17,000 feet. While we were waiting for our luggage, we took refuge in a Tibetan encampment. The Tibetans were out with their herds of yaks, grazing them over the hillsides. We were rather amused to find that they had guns in their encampment, which they evidently used for sporting purposes and we thought regretfully of the limitations which had been put on our expedition. Next morning we had a delightful march, crossing the last and highest ridge of the Donkala and camped halfway to Fari, finally reaching Fari Tsong after a very pleasant morning's ride over delightful green turf and passing immense flocks of sheep grazing on the hillsides. Here, on July 20, we found a welcome post and spent the day in great comfort in the Faritong bungalow. Two days later, we reached Chumbi and met the McDonald's again, 
and were, as usual, sumptuously entertained by them. Here, our transport had to be reorganised to take our still rather large convoy down to India. Geoffrey and I climbed the neighbouring hills and really revelled in the whole journey down, which had been very reminiscent of the West Himalaya in summer. Chumbi is wonderful. Even in the rains, the climate is delightful. It cannot have more than one-third of the rainfall which falls only 20 miles away on the other side of the Jalap. In fact, when two days later we crossed the Jalap, we were immediately involved again in the mists and rains and sleets, and were again in a completely and absolutely different type of country. We arrived at Natong on July 27 in pouring rain, but next morning it had cleared and on the way down as we started, the clouds showed signs of really lifting. On arrival at the ridge, over which the road crosses before beginning the long descent to Rongli Chu, about 400 feet above Natong, we were lucky enough to come in for one of those sudden breaks which occasionally occur during the monsoon, and if one is at the moment in a position to profit by them, one obtains one of the most glorious sights to be found in this world. Such was our luck this morning. Standing on the ridge, we were able to see the plains of India stretched out beneath us to the south, the plains of Kuchbihar, with the Mahanadi River running through them quite clear, while on our right, Kanchenjunga rose through the clouds, a perfectly marvellous vision of ice and snow, looking immeasurably high. The clouds were drifting and continually changing across the hillsides and the deep valleys. The extremely deep and in places sombre colour, the astonishingly brilliant colour where the sun lit up the mountains, and the prodigious heights made a mountain vision which must be entirely unsurpassed in any other portion of the globe. It was a moment to live for, but the moment was all too short. In half an hour, the vision of the plains and the mountains was completely blotted out. At Lungtung, we visited the little tea shop where we had all collected as we had promised the patroness on our way up. There she was again, full of smiles, with her family round her, and we all stayed there and drank hot tea, which we thoroughly enjoyed after the cold and driving mist, and the flow of chaff, I think, even surpassed that of our first visit. So exhilarated were we that Geoffrey and I ran at top speed down to Sedong Chen, which is only 6,000 feet, tearing down the hillsides, and by so doing, although we occasionally took shortcuts over grassy banks and through forests where it was not too thick, we arrived at Sedong Chen, having entirely baffled the leeches, which swarm in this part of the forest. Not so, however, Wakefield. He also had been exhilarated and had taken a shortcut down, but he had been too trusting, and he arrived with his legs simply crawling with leeches. The rest of our journey through Sikkim requires no particular comment, except that the weather behaved itself in a wonderful way and we escaped any real heavy duckings. The heat, although considerable in the lower valleys and moist, was not at all oppressive.
so much so that we were able to travel at a great pace down to Rongli Bridge, which is only 700 feet above the sea. We arrived in Darjeeling on August 2, everyone by now in thoroughly good health. Here we were to await the arrival of Crawford and Somerville, who were making tremendous attempts, considering that it was the height of the monsoon, to see something of the south face of Kanchen, and even, if possible, to do a little climbing, a rather ambitious program under the circumstances. Five or six days later they arrived, quite pleased with themselves, and having had a very strenuous time, but naturally having seen a minimum of the country they travelled over. At Darjeeling the party rapidly broke up, although the staff of the expedition had about a fortnight's work clearing up business matters, which included the proper provision for the families of the unfortunate porters who had been lost in the avalanche. Thus ended the first attempt to climb Mount Everest. I think on the whole we may be quite satisfied with the results. It would have been almost unthinkable if a great mountain like Everest, the highest in the world, almost the greatest in scale as well, had yielded to the very first assault. After all, it took a very long time, many years in fact, to climb the easier of the great mountains of the Alps. It took many years to find the way, even, up the north face of the Matterhorn, a problem which would now only be considered one of the second class. How then could we expect on the very first occasion to solve all the different problems which are included in an assault on Everest? It is not merely a case of mountaineering, or of mountaineering skill, nor even of having a most highly trained party, there are many other problems which we also have to consider. Our methods had almost to be those of an Arctic expedition. At the same time, our clothing and outfit in many ways had to be suitable for mountain climbing. Our climbing season was extraordinarily short, far shorter than it would have been in any mountains in the West. Not only that, but all the warnings of the scientists tended to show that no very great height could probably be reached without oxygen, and that even with an oxygen apparatus, there were a great many dangers to be faced. Among other things, we were told that having once put on the oxygen apparatus, and having once for any continuous period worked on an artificial supply of oxygen, the sudden cessation of that supply would certainly cause unconsciousness and probably would cause death. Luckily for us, this was proved not to be in accordance with actual practical experience, as the height reached by our climbing party, which had not used oxygen, was more than 2,000 feet higher than any point yet reached. For the Duke of Abruzzi, in his great attempt on the Bride Peak on the Baltoro Glacier in Baltistan, did not quite reach 24,600 feet while Mallory, Somerville and Norton reached 26,985 feet. In the whole range of the mountains of the world, there are only four peaks that top this great height, namely Mount Everest itself, K2 in the Karakoram in Baltistan, Broad Peak on the Baltoro Glacier, and Makalu in the Everest Group. Therefore, this climb stands actually as the fifth of the great altitudes of the world.
It is a perfectly prodigious performance, and taken simply as a tour de force, stands in the front rank in no matter what department of sport or human endeavour. The men who took part in this climb have every reason to be proud of themselves. As I have pointed out, Finch and Geoffrey Bruce, using oxygen, took a route traversing the face of the mountain to the west, and before they were completely played out and conditions were such that they had to return, reached a height of 27,235 feet. If they had directly mounted up the ridge, they would undoubtedly have reached the point on the main Everest crest, which is marked at 27,390, and have progressed along it to a greater altitude. There is no doubt in my mind whatever of this. Not only would their route have been far more direct, but the actual ground over which they would have to climb would have been easier. It is quite certain that with the same exertions on the same day, they could have reached a higher point than they did. That does not, however, in the least detract from their performance. Their experiences, as has been pointed out by Finch, ease the oxygen question immensely. It was shown that it was quite possible to remove the oxygen apparatus altogether, having used it fully and having reached a height of 25,500 feet. Nor was the accident to Jeffrey's apparatus attended with any of the terrible consequences which we were led to expect. Very satisfactory from the point of view of our final success in climbing Everest. There is no doubt that the height will be attained, provided the very best men, the best apparatus, and an outfit of porters equally as good as our own attempt it. And there are plenty of men to draw from for porters. We could probably obtain without difficulty a team as good or better. Of that, I am quite certain. It was pretty evident that one of the secrets of living with immunity high up is that the actual clothes on the men's backs should be as light as possible and as windproof as possible. Proper protection should be taken against the wind for the head also and the greatest care must be taken and the necessity for care be understood by everybody in the protection of their hands and feet. It is quite possible that with a little more care we might have escaped this year without any serious consequences from that point of view. These remarks apply equally to the outfit for the porters. Men who worked with so little experience and took camps for us to a height of 25,500 feet would, if correctly outfitted, take the camp 500 to 1,000 feet higher. Of that, I am quite convinced. An improved and lighter oxygen apparatus is under construction. When this has been completed, I have every reason to believe that an oxygen depot could be well established at 26,000 feet, thus allowing a full time for the attempt on the greater heights. This year there was always at the back of the oxygen carrier's minds a slight doubt that their oxygen might give out and that the consequences to them would be most unpleasant. Another problem that must always be borne in mind when one's object is the assault of a great mountain in the Himalaya is to bring one's whole party there in first-class health and training. This sounds an unnecessary remark to have to make, 
but as a matter of fact, the task is not as easy as it appears. The great danger lies in fatiguing and exhausting one's party before the real test comes. This year there was great danger of our working the porters out, and this question gave me a good deal of anxiety. But they were all absolute gluttons for work, and I never would have believed that men could have carried out such tremendous hard labour in establishing our high camps, and apparently continuing fit and well, showing no signs of staleness, and quite ready to continue up the mountain. Before we left Darjeeling, I forwarded to the Dalai Lama, on behalf of the Mount Everest Committee, a letter of thanks for all the assistance which he had given to our expedition, and sent with it, for him and for the Tashilompo Lama also, a silk banner on which was printed a coloured picture of the Potala, the great palace of the Dalai Lamas in Lhasa. End of chapter 3 Part 3. Recording by Nick Vlahakis, San Francisco.